0: Hi, I'm retired NYPD Detective Vic Ferrari, and welcome to NYPD Through the Looking Glass podcast, where you'll get unique insight into the New York City Police Department. On today's episode, we'll chat with retired NYPD Narcotics Sergeant Paul Fianza. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you, for having me. Thank you for having me. So, Paul, you grew up in Massachusetts. What made you come to New York City and become a New York City police officer?
1: uh well it's a long story my father was in the military police in world war ii and he used to tell me all these different stories about being a cop and uh i just had an interest in it so after college i applied to a bunch of departments and my intention was always to go to some big department get some experience and go back to massachusetts but uh so new york called me first and uh I guess the rest is history. I went down and uh, I loved it. Once I got down there, I loved the city and that was going to be my home.
0: Did you have any family? See, I grew up in the Bronx, so for me, I was living with my parents. I just commuted to the police academy every day. You had to, like, upheaval your life. Well,
1: it turns out that there were good friends of my parents who had relatives in Flushing, Queens. And they got me an apartment next door to them and... uh, and, and, uh, and uh, I moved uh, in there, uh, and, they uh, and they sort of, sort like, of like looked looked, looked after, me after me for a while, while until I got my feet on, feet on the ground. On the ground. So uh, it worked, it worked out, well.
0: out well. It is. It's a weird when you go into the police academy. It's um, especially like the first month until you figure it out. It, it's it's getting up making sure your uniform is a hunt, you're shining your shoes, you're in the mirror checking out your haircut because they would bust your balls. You know, so it was, uh, and then you go home, and they gave, the first couple of weeks, as I remember it, they gave you oodles and oodles of homework, take-home stuff. So it was like you really had no life whatsoever. And then on the weekends, you were paranoid trying to tighten up things that you didn't want to get abused, you know, or in bat humiliated in front of your classmates. But yeah. Again, yeah. I live with my parents, so it was easy. You, you know, you, ho- luckily for you, you, you oh, people oh. looking out for you. Yeah, but it was
1: crazy, you know, You like you said, you'd have to get up carrying that big black bag, and uh, walk. I'd have to walk up to Main Street, grab a bus, take it to the train, you know, take the number seven into Manhattan, and uh, oh, my God, it was it was something new for me, I'll tell you.
0: Oh, so you didn't drive in?
1: No, no, I took the train.
0: I commuted with a kid, I went to high school with, great guy, and... You know, We would, park, we would split the, the gasoline and the parking cost, and we would park under the FDR Drive and then walk through Stytown. I forget what it is, 20th Street, and walk all the way up. And During the police academy on a Sunday, the same guy, we're playing football. I tear the ligaments in my ankle, and they put me in a cast, and they tell me six to eight weeks, and I'm like, shit. So I had every day I would commute, drive down, park, and with crutches, and that bag over my shoulder <laughs> and crutch it. From the FDR Drive, oh man, I had to work. I had bruises under my armpits for like decades until <laughs> I finally healed up. Uh,
1: the craziest part was when you did the when you did the four to twelves, and here you are on the, on the train going home at like one o'clock in the morning, you know, and then waiting for the bus. Oh, it was it was it was you know, it is what it is.
0: And the funny thing is, they don't want you. I mean, people don't realize like in the NYPD no matter how much time you have on the job, they don't want you getting involved in anything off-duty. I mean, short of someone breaking into your house or pointing a gun at you and demanding money, they don't want, they want you to go to the pay... You could be witnessing the most terrible thing in the world. They want you to go to a payphone or nowadays a cell phone and call 911 and say, you know, I'm an off-duty member of the service MOS, and this is happening. You, you know, and, but, and the police academy, you're in that uniform, and people think that you're a cop and they're running oh, up to you, and it's like, you can't do a damn thing, and you don't have anything to defend yourself. That, that... Hit him with the bag. That, that <laughs> rubber billy that looked like a dildo that they gave you, that you, that was like the first thing you threw out after the police academy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so after the police academy, where'd you go? You were a three guy, right? You were you were in the Bronx? Yeah, yeah.
1: I went to the Bronx to 4'3. I was, four, five, three. Yeah, I was yeah, there I for uh, a few years, years and, and I I things just sort of fell, fell into, into, place, into place, place for me. The, uh, uh, you know, I... Uh, I met some good people along the way and uh... i stayed there for about two and a half years and then someone said yeah you want to go to the Bronx Task Force you know you get off get off patrol and so i did that for a while and then uh... again someone said hey you know uh... street crimes looking you can make some overtime there it's plain clothes so i went to street crime and uh... that was fun worked all over the city Um, had had a good time there uh, I love dressing up, especially when we were down in Times Square. Uh, I'd dress as a tourist, camera around my head, and, uh, and just uh, walk looking up at the at buildings. And you know, you'd know, you get the people selling you bricks in a box, and you'd get the pickpockets. It was just great. It was fun.
0: And then. Let me just back up for one second. The street crime unit was a very prestigious unit. It was. I guess it started in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and I think it got disbanded in the early 2000s. It, it was it was a unit all onto itself. They turned out of Randall's Island. Right. That right. itself gave it mystique because you have the Triborough Bridge that runs through three boroughs, and beneath it there's this little forgotten island. It's actually the last scene of the French Connection where uh, Popeye confronts the Frenchman. I mean, it's in the middle of nowhere. There's soccer fields that nobody plays on. I mean, the city uses it for staging areas for a lot of things. But on that island, you had this unit. It was a citywide unit of the best of the best of plainclothes cops that would go out in taxi cabs and all these unmarked cars, yep, yep. and it was encouraged to dress up like Hasidic Jews and rabbis yep, and, yep. And, and, and tourists and just be decoys and, you know, ride the trains. And actually, um, the movie Nighthawks with um, right, Sylvester, Stallone Sylvester Stallone is a street crime yep. cop. So I right. forgot yep. about that, yep. that you had, worked there, you had that background. Yeah, and uh, it was funny.
1: I mean, one night we were in a yellow taxi cab, and, of course, the only way you could tell it was uh, the police was there was an R in the letter on the, on the meter. And uh, so here we are sitting on, like, 6th Avenue and 42nd Street. I was driving. My partner was in the back. And this guy jumps in with his briefcase, and he goes, take me to 42nd and 8th Avenue. And we're like, listen, you got to get out. We're a police car. We're not. What are you not a police car? You got a meter and everything? So, uh. Next thing you know, overcomes like shots fired, like 42nd Street and 8th Avenue. I said, well, now you're going. So we shot across 42nd Street. When I got to, uh, what is it, like Broadway, the street was jammed. I drove on the sidewalk for like most of eight, 8th, Ninth Avenue. Oh, my God. This guy was like, let me out. You know? <laughs> but I'm sure he's talking about that to this day, you know. But it was, it was a good time.
0: People don't realize New York City, especially a borough like Manhattan, which is so densely pop, uh, populated, you got to get creative to get the things. Like, be it if you're on foot commandeering a gypsy cab and jumping in the back, take me here, or like you said, driving up on the sidewalk. I was a cop in a small town in Florida after I retired from the NYPD and had a training sergeant, a training cop. And she had like 20 years on. She had experience. And there was this brawl going on at the h- local high school, and there was a cop getting his ass kicked. I drove against traffic, mounted on the sidewalk, and this woman was screaming, like, what the fuck are you doing? You're screaming at me, like, you can't do it. Like, I, I pull into the parking lot of school, you can smell the brakes. You know what I mean? Like, I, I probably wore down the, uh, the rotors and everything. Like, she's like, you can't do that here. She goes, what if somebody from um, the town sees that? They're going to they're gonna complain. I'm like, I, I don't care. I'd rather get fired than this cop getting the shit kicked out of him was shot. So people don't realize that in New York. You've got to get inventive when the shit hits the fan. you got to. You have to. So how yep. long were you in street crime? Uh, probably about a
1: year and a half. I was studying for the sergeant's test um, at the time. So, uh, yeah, I think I was there till like 88. And then uh, actually I got transferred to narcotics in the Bronx. And I was there until I got promoted.
0: Oh, so you were upstairs uh, which, in
1: the five zero. Um, correct. Correct. Yep.
0: yep. yep. How yeah. Yeah. So uh,
1: that was uh, a you know, you uh, know uh, well, no. it was a money making just so overtime so basically. You know? But we had, it was it was good. It was a good unit. Good guys working there. And uh, and then I got promoted to sergeant. And uh, I got sent to the four eight for my uh, I don't know you know training and then from there to the five o.
0: Tell the story you were telling me before about when you were in the 4-8 and you found the doll on the roof.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, we worked steady midnights and midnight guys always had, they were always off just a little bit. And uh, we had a report of, I think shots fired on the roof of a building and uh, which was common occurrence in the 4-8. Most of the time it was nonsense. They just wanted the cops there. So uh, we get up to the roof, and um, there was this, like, full-size doll laying on the roof. And there was nothing going on up there. But uh, there was still cops coming to the scene. So one of us grabbed the baby doll, went to the edge of the roof, and threw it off the roof and said, Watch out for the baby! <laughs> and, of course, it smashed on the ground in front of, like, some other boss. And they weren't too happy about it, but we had a good laugh. You know, it, there was... So much going on in the 4-8, you needed a little levity, you know. Everyone needed to have a good laugh now and then. I did
0: my NSU in 7, which turned out of the 4-8, and that was a heavy place. I mean, you know, the 4-4 and the 4-6, everybody thinks of as like the premier busy, you know, guys eating in the car, answering 30 jobs a night, you know, anything goes. But the 4-8 was no joke either. I mean, the 4-8, those guys were busy. And they were right between the 4 6 and, 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 you know, I mean, they they were right next to it. So
1: those guys really
0: worked their asses off, too. Unless you were
1: on Arthur Avenue, you know, where it was nice. You know, you could go from one end to the other, you know, it was crazy.
0: Yeah, as uh, long as you didn't piss off the local mobster. That's right. Everything was fine. (laughs) The boys. You see the guys at the social clubs with the wife beaters and the gold chains hanging out in front of a cafe, sipping their espresso, and
1: it was quiet
0: down there. um, Just before I got hired, you had a um, a bias incident, and then the NYPD put a trailer up there. I don't know. Did you remember that, that bias detail? I remember that. They had a trailer up by St. Barnabas High School, and they would fly 50 or 100 cops a night. And we just saturated that neighborhood it was like it was like yep, indians yep. we're all waving to each other across the street like and the neighborhood hated us because you got a hundred yep, cops yep. sitting in this tiny neighborhood and what do you do now all of a sudden you start noticing things rocks start getting unturned parking tickets start you know the neighborhood hated us like they just couldn't they, know. they would have preferred crime after being saturated with 100 cops a night for x amount of years it was just it was a bit much so you and i met up I, I had left task force. I had about three years in. I had worked in the South Bronx for a while. I wanted to change a pace. I go to the 50, and I wound, up, I wound up in your squad. And I didn't know you from a hole in the head. And, no. Uh, no. I, I, you, you had a steady driver who's actually in my book um, for a couple of his things. He used to carry uh, – Paul's driver used to carry this briefcase that looked like something that would carry a dirty bomb in a um, – <laughs> A Mission Impossible movie. And the guy had everything in this briefcase. I mean, anything, whatever you needed. He had a defibrillator in there. He had Narcan. He had tools, extra handcuffs, every form you can imagine. And one day, he comes after roll call. The desk officer, who's new, tells him, "Um, you got the cells today. Just get changed and and put your stuff away and take the cells with the prison. He says, okay. And he leaves his briefcase at the desk. Do you remember that? Yeah, the desk officer calls the bomb squad because the precinct is empty empty except for the desk officer. He sees it. He freaks out. He calls the bomb squad. And you got the guy in the anteater outfit coming through the back of the precinct to get this thing. And our friend comes walking out of the cells and picks it up. And the guy is like, stop, stop. And he's like, it's my briefcase. Like, they were pissed. I remember that. Oh, God, That's, God, that's funny. funny. And then you and I, we were in the same squad for a while. You went to anti-crime, I kept making arrests, and then eventually I wound up in anti-crime with you guys. And I mean, that was probably one of the most fun times in my career because we were in plain clothes. and the anti-crime unit in the precinct is kind of like a scaled back version of street crime. You're in plain clothes. there's usually one or two unmarked cars, it's usually two or three to cops with a sergeant, and you go out and you look for robbery patterns, stolen cars. You're not undercover, but being in plain clothes in the unmarked car, and and, and the neighborhood uh, urchins know who you are, but you still have that split second to roll up on somebody.
1: No question. Yep. yep.
0: And our precinct was at, I looked this up last night, our precinct during that time period we were working together, that sleepy little precinct in Riverdale, that Porter's Yonkers, was averaging 2,000 stolen vehicles a year. I, I I remember, I mean, I remember in our office,
1: I had had a map up, but I used to keep track of the amount of cars, especially, I remember the Hondas. Oh, remember the place off the Deegan, where they, they took the guardrail out and they brought in like 50 Hondas one night, stripped them all, they all had the club on the steering wheel, and they just, oh my God, it was nuts. Yeah, stolen cars were 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 crazy, crazy for a for a small sleepy, small sleepy little
0: precinct. Then you had that abandoned Conrail building off of two twenty fifth street that they had broken into and driven same thing, like twenty or thirty stolen cars. We just happened to see homeless guys coming and going out of there. And we walk <laughs> in one and it's it's pitch black. So you walk it in there and it's like, holy shit, there's like a million cars in here and it was like all these <laughs> homeless guys just picked yeah, them yeah. apart. And, you know, it wasn't like an organized thing. They were just They were putting fenders and bumpers and shopping carts and then throwing a blanket over it. And then they would cross over the 225th Street Bridge into Inwood. And then you had the body shops over there. And they were selling crap piecemeal. But it was going on for a while until we just happened to notice a couple of homeless guys. And it was like, it was an environmental hazard. Like every fluid you could think of. And they were shooting up in there. And there was no light. So it was dangerous. I remember you and I and Malcolm, we would sit. On, there's a hill going up into Riverdale. Was that Riverdale hmm. Avenue going up the hill? It was like something out of a movie. you so, so. sit there at night, and you'd watch like carfuls of guys going up there, and we'd start following them. And they'd drop yep, off yep. a guy, and the guy'd look around, and they'd either break in with a screwdriver, or they would pull in the locks out. Remember with the Monteros? Yep, they yep. would pull the locks out, get back in the car. There was a code on it, and then they had a book. And then they would cut They had a Curtis key. key. They would cut a key, come back and steal the car. I mean, or we would sit on the hill and watch them come down. We were just talking about this the other day. You and I were working at midnight, and we see like five cars, brand new cars, racing down the hill. Like, what the hell is this? And we, the last guy stopped, and it was.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was great because they used to go through the toll booths on the Henry Hudson, and all they'd have was the token or quarters at that time. And, uh, and uh, that's uh, all they'd have, they have in the, the car. car. They'd, they'd just they'd get there, throw, to the, throw the token throw in, the in, and, they were, and they were gone. You
0: know, I mean, uh, yeah. You know, we had a lot of leeway because we had a commanding officer. You know, he was, um, he was an old school guy. He wasn't a politician. You know, a lot of times people don't realize in the NYPD, you only get as far as captain. And uh, through civil service exams and then deputy inspector, inspector, chief, and up, up the line, it's, po- it's political. You got to have a rabbi, or the department really has to like you to move up the ladder. And this guy was anything but a politician. As a matter of fact, I liked him. You liked him too. He was a bull yep. in a china shop. He was, um, if, if you ever watch Seinfeld the way they depict George Seinbrenner, all right, George. <laughs> <And> I, like, <laughs> I was getting yelled at in a lieutenant's office for making, a, for, for making an arrest. I had a district attorney's pool car, and I saw a stolen car with teenagers in it. I got involved by myself. I'm getting ripped. I'm getting, you know, you're going on midnights, and, you know, you can't fight crime by yourself. And he walks in. Hey, what's going on with this GLA problem up in this end of the precinct? He's like, um, Inspector, just just give me a second. I got to talk to, uh, you know, Officer Ferrari. And he's like, yeah, but we're getting killed up there. And I, that was my cue. I go, boss, I, I just made a GLA grand loss in the auto car with three This is what I mean. We need guys like this. Would you like to be in the auto loss car? I went from midnight. He put me in the GLA car on the day tour. So... i i I liked him i mean i I think he He
1: was he was a he was a good commander and he stuck up for us all the time and if we had anything going i could walk right into his office and we could get whatever we need he was really proactive he loved cops that worked
0: oh yeah and and we did i mean it wasn't like i mean especially our squad i mean we were just coming in with a lot of stuff and Tell the story you were telling me the other day about you and Malcolm with the guys with the, with, with the Jeep, with the guns. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, they gave us the best unmarked cars.
1: You know, we had a Plymouth Fury that just didn't have markings on it. And, uh, you know, it had the little portable computer in the car. Everyone knew who we were. You know, you know Joe, John Q. Public didn't know who we were. But every perp in the Bronx knew who you were. So here we were, I think we were doing like a 6-2 to or 4-12, to and we were just sort of waiting, it was the end of the tour, we were just sort of sitting down and uh, just having a cup of coffee, I think, before we went home, and um, this Jeep, no top, I think there was two guys in it, flies through a red light, not even slowing down, so he goes, Malcolm was like, what do you want to do, you want to follow these guys, and I go, I guess, you know, let's just hang behind him and see what's going on. Maybe the guy's late for work. Who the hell knows? So we started following him. And, man, he's just blowing through light after light after light. light. He's not stopping. So we just stayed, like, way back. Because it was, like, 1 o'clock in the morning. There was no traffic. So uh, he goes into the 5-2. And uh, there was a hospital there. Pulled into the emergency room. Jumped out. Ran inside. Ran back out. Jumped in his car, took off again. <clears throat> this time we, we said, well, let's pull this guy over and figure out what's going on. So we called for backup from the 5-2 and we stopped him. And as we walked up to the car, Malcolm looked in the back of the Jeep and he gave me the signal that there was a firearm. And so we just played it cool and... I walked up to the guys and go, hey, you know, license registration. And they didn't have anything. In fact, the driver, all he had on was a pair of shorts, no shirt, nothing. And uh, he goes, oh, I don't have anything. I said, well, listen, do me a favor, guys. Just step out of the car, the Jeep. Come back to our car. It's just, we're going to just verify your ID. I mean, we didn't, we didn't raise them up at all. And they came back. We put them in the back of the car, searched them. We went back and looked, and there's two... I think 9 millimeters, they were laying in the back, both with their slides back, like they had run out of ammunition. And Malcolm picked it up he goes, man, these guns are all wet. It turns out they were covered in blood. Because they were. apparently what had happened is the guy that was driving, if I remember correctly, his family was having a christening. And some guy came by on a motorcycle and did, did a, a, a drive-by, apparently. So he got his two friends... In the jeep and they went back to their their neighborhood and they ended up shooting four people there and they had a guy in the back and he had both guns and he was apparently shooting like this and he got shot fell out of the jeep some livery picked them up and he these guys were going to hospitals trying to find them and uh oh it was a crazy crazy thing but you never knew what you were going to come across you know the 5 was an interesting precinct You could go hide up at, uh, you know, 261 Riverdale Avenue, mansions up there. You go sit and look at the Hudson River, or you go down the other end, and it was nuts.
0: It was, and it's funny because different cops would hang out in different parts of the precinct. Or hide in different, you know, it was like either you were right, and, and not that like the busiest part of our precinct was anything like the 4 4 to 4 6. Oh, no, at not at all. But, I mean, there was stuff that would jump off, especially on weekends. And, and we the 3 4, which was. Hey, there like, were a lot, know, lot of guns down there, down there, a lot
1: of, lot of home invasions, of you know, a lot, lot of burglaries. Of there was a lot going on.
0: Well, a lot of the drug dealers from, from the Washington Heights that boarded Riverdale would rent right. or purchase condominiums. In the 50 and use them as stash houses. I don't know if you remember that. I don't even know to this day if it was solved. You had those two people that were stabbed to death in that apartment. I remember and that. Duffel bags full of weed, marijuana, like yep. hundreds of pounds of marijuana, and I had locked yeah. up this kid for a stolen car, and I asked, and he knew a little, but he really didn't want to give it up. Like he had known them, uh, the victims right. of the homicide, and then I brought him to Bronx homicide, and he just, you know, he wasn't cooperating. I think he thought he had said too much. Right. Are you remember that homicide?
1: I do, I do. I do. They had a U-Haul truck parked, parked in, front in front, and, and uh, they had unloaded, like, like, ten bales of marijuana. I remember all the marijuana in the house. Yeah, and they were both killed, yeah.
0: And no one, I don't think anybody stole anything. I think it was just, like, a hit. Like, they owed money yeah. or something, right? Because I, if memory Maybe. Maybe. I don't rem- You know, I mean. I, I
1: don't, don't really of, remember uh, all the details. Control. You know, I think we might have been on, patrol, on patrol at that control. time, so I, I don't, I don't know. know.
0: That that's quite possible. Yeah. yeah. So, in anti-crime, we would work different hours. So we would work right nine thirty in the morning till six at night, and six hmm. at night to two in the morning. And the reason we did that was to overlap the eight to four, four to twelve, and midnight. Right. And Malcolm and I were always looking for a collar. And we used to drive you nuts because at 6 at night till 2 in the morning, we would stay out there like kids with a curfew. Like, we, like you, want to, you know, it's come back about 1, one thirty, you know, we'll talk and, you know, we'll gas up the cars and we'll get ready and we'll go home. Malcolm and I would come rolling into the precinct at 2 a.m. and you'd be standing, like a parent, you'd be standing out there looking at your watch with your hands on your hips like, what the fuck, like, what's it going to take, guys? And I remember one night. So you were so pissed. It's about 1.30 in the morning. Malcolm and I, it's just starting to rain like a light drizzle. About 1.30, 1.45, and you're like, 5-0 crime on the air. Like, I can just tell by your voice you're getting pissed. Because you had just warned us. 5-0 crime on the air. And he's looking at me, and I'm looking at him. We're laughing. Right? So, like, don't answer. Right? So, this gypsy cab rolls by us on Kingsbridge Road, and uh, I run the plate. And it comes back 16 or stolen from a day or two before. And Malcolm and I had had like a series of pulling cab drivers out of the car. So what these gypsy cabs do is they they rent their car out to somebody else. And if the guy doesn't bring it back in time, they go to the precinct. They report it stolen to get it back. So we had had this pulled a couple of cab drivers out that they got their car back. They never canceled the alarm. And we're pulling them out at gunpoint. So there's no one on the road. It's 1.30 in the morning. I run the plate, and I go, let's call another radio call. We'll try to box him in. And Malcolm goes, no, this is a failure to cancel. He goes, let's just pull him over. So now, by the time we follow, we follow him into the next precinct, we're like on the 5246 border on Fordham Road, going down the hill by Webster, right? We put the little cherry line on. We tap the siren. Guy pulls over immediately. So Malcolm goes, see? I said, all right, you're right. When you're right, you're right? Right. We get out of the car. It's just starting to rain. As Malcolm and I walk up on either side of this car, we're by the back wheels. The guy slams it and drives, and you're, I'm like, shit. We jump back in the car. We're chasing this guy down Webster Avenue, and Webster Avenue is a wide, it's four or six-lane thoroughfare. You know, I mean, it's wide, and it's on the midnight, so there's no one out there, and you just see this guy is blowing through red lights, and he's not touching the brake. Like, you just see him shooting. Like, I'm slowing down. I'm doing 60, 70 miles an hour. I'm tapping the brake, making sure I don't get broadsided. This guy is just... The guy hooks a left on 17-something. There's a sergeant from the 4-8 sitting in a radio car with his female driver eating. The guy wipes out and crashes into them. Like, they're just sitting there off Park Avenue by the train. This guy makes the turn trying to get away from us, and he crashes into a park police car, right? We jump out. We lock the guy up. We bring him into the, you know, we bring him into the station. As you're trying to raise this over the air, and I'm like, Malcolm goes to pick up the radio. I go, he's gonna yell at us when we get into the precinct. Why should he yell at us twice? I go, like, just, just let him yell at us once, right? We come into the precinct with this guy, and it turns out it was a cab robbery. The guy had, um, I think it was a knife or a sharpened pair of scissors, had put it to the driver's throat and stolen the cab. So not only was it a stolen vehicle with a chase, it turned out to be a robbery, which. We had a robbery pattern, so you were okay with it. But yeah, I remember we used to do that to you all the time. Like, what's it gonna take? I one thirty means one thirty. I felt like a kid getting yelled at. Me. I know like,
1: you, guys, you guys. You guys would be hot and, and heavy
0: on that computer, computer between one thirty and two, just pull looking pull for that collar. collar. Oh man, and it didn't change because when I was in Auto Crime, we had like computers, so it was like, oh, this. Is, I was like a kid in a candy store when I went to Auto Crime. <laughs> how long? How long were you in um, narcotics for? As a sergeant. Uh, I was in narcotics
1: from 95 95 until 2003.
0: Wow, that's a long time for a supervisor to be in narcotics. And and you worked in Manhattan South, so that covers, what, south of 59th Street, right? Yeah, yeah. so it covered 57th to 34th, River to River. Jesus. And and you had a lot of interesting cases. I mean, you you did buy and bust, obviously, picking off the guys selling crack. A lot of buy buy and bust. bust. Yeah, I mean, we got...
1: We got there, I got there when they were trying to transform 42nd Street. So it would be eight, nine teams a day, 24 hours, working those blocks. And then as soon as you got one clean, they'd move patrol in, and patrol would be there, and then you'd go to the next block and just keep doing it. I mean, probably in that 1995 to 97, probably... 50,000 arrests out of that area. I mean, easily. You know, just buying bus 24 hours a day.
0: It was like the you Wild know? West down there. Like I, I tell on other podcasts, like when I was a kid, we used to go down there as teenagers to get fireworks, fake IDs. Oh, 42nd Street up. was crazy. It, it, you could yeah. buy anything and anyone down there. I
1: mean, it was just, It, it was the wild,
0: as soon as you got off the train, it was like, you know, yeah. it was like. It, for, for,
1: all for all, like all those variety, little variety stores, stores and, stuff, and stuff, man, you, you could buy, buy whatever and you want. Switch Blades. I mean, it was great.
0: So after doing buy and bust, you moved up the rung as far as... Did you ever have any cases when you were down in the south with the Westies? Or like remnants of the Westies? Not really. We did a lot of buy and
1: bust on 10th Avenue, Hell's Hell's Kitchen. kitchen. That was a big heroin area. And, um, you know, I don't remember any cases that specifically dealt with the Westies. But, you know, they were renowned there. Oh but, yeah, uh, and, and supposedly you know a lot um, of their
0: relatives are still or were. Um, yeah, yeah
1: things
0: that, that
1: whole that whole strip that whole was Tenth uh, uh, Avenue, Ninth Avenue, Avenue over there it was very, very busy, very busy with drugs. So, so tell yeah. that
0: story. I remember you telling me that this buds for you story where you stopped some guy <laughs> with a business oh, a, card. No, it it
1: turned, it turned out, out that, that uh, some kid was at a playground, playground or something and. This guy came up to him and gave him a business card that said, this bud's for you. And his dad was a lieutenant in the 17th. So he brought the card home and he gave it to his father. And at the time, I was covering the 17th precinct. So his father called me up and said, hey, I got this card. You know, I don't know what it is. It sounds like it's a drug delivery thing or something. He says do you want to do anything with it? So I said, yeah, sure, give it to me. So, um, you know, we had... It was great. I mean, OCCB was such a great unit to work for, and, uh, you know, we had telephones that it could be coming from, like, when you'd call caller ID, it would say, like, New Jersey or Queens or the Bronx or whatever, so, um, I had one of my undercovers call up this, the number, and it was, it was a drug, marijuana delivery, you know, so, uh, we started buying off this guy, and, uh, it went up and down over. We did it for quite some time. I think we had some other stuff in the meantime, and it sort of got put on the, on hold. And then we finally got back to it. And out of the blue, we just said, listen, let's see what this guy can move for weight. Tell him we want to buy a pound. So he calls him up. Yeah, I want to buy a pound a week. It was like no problem, you know. So we, uh, by now we had the guy ID. We knew where he lived. So we made this, the arrest for the um, pound. We already had the search warrant for his house. So we hit his house the next morning. I think we got like, man, maybe like five grand and uh, uh, maybe a couple more pounds of weed out of there. So then we take him in. I mean, the investigators that worked for me were top-notch, really good guys and and women. And uh, they interviewed this guy, and he says, well, I only buy from one guy. You know, this is like a very small organization. So he gave it up. So we went and hit a search warrant that night on the next guy. He was, uh, I think he worked on Wall Street or something. He couldn't afford to be arrested. And he had about five pounds of weed at his house. So we said, well, listen, you know, we'll do the deal with you too. So he gave us the guy he bought from, which was back in Manhattan.
0: (laughs) What about Tell that story about um, you? You, you um, the guys in the mailroom at Bass Stearns. Yeah, yeah so uh,
1: just, you know, the 17th Precinct again. Everyone thinks the 17th Precinct is just, there's nothing going on there. And, and really, there is nothing going on there. Um, but um, we had an undercover, got some information that they were dealing out of a local bar. And they went there and hooked up with some guy that was selling coke and we uh you know we did the investigation it took us a while and then found out that the guys that was selling worked in the mailroom at bear stearns in manhattan which was a big investment banker it's not there anymore now they're uh, i think they're out of business um so then we went to the ceo there and just said hey listen we're going to do a search warrant on your mailroom just so you know, and, uh, you know, we're on the eighth floor of this high-rise in Manhattan. Um, So uh, that day, they, they they were very good to us. They let us in. We walked into the mail room. The main guy, man, I, I think he peed his pants right there in the mail room when he saw NYPD raid jackets in his mail room. But uh, we ended up recovering something like eight ounces of coke. You know, and uh, yeah, it was great. A nice, another nice arrest. I mean. But you know, like I said, we had some great undercovers who could really work cases and good investigators. It was, uh, it was, it was nice working for a nice group of people that really knew their job and were go-getters. You know.
0: Oh yeah, and then you you were telling me you had a great informant. Um, but like like all informants, they try to play both ends against the middle. They, they, yeah. they always hold back. Because they know they're going to get caught and they they, they want that one more card to place down to get them out of trouble. Yeah. Tell the story about the, the yeah. informant that you're, you're off duty and he's in a hotel. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 Looking to make a deal. Yeah. <laughs> you know,
1: Yeah. You know. sometimes these informants thought they were the police too. So, uh, you know, they'd call you up and say, hey, by the way, I got a couple of hundred grand in a suitcase. I want to go make a deal. You know, and I uh, want you guys to come along and be like, no, nah, it don't work that way. Where are you? And, uh, you know, they went to the hotel and they seized all his money and said, you know, maybe down the road we'll do something our way. You know, you're not the one. It's not like TV. You don't make all the rules, you know. So. Uh, How much money do you have in the suitcase? Something like
0: 200000 Yeah. You know, and, and they don't think that we're going to ask, like, where that money came from. Yeah, and that money all got forfeited, you know?
1: I mean, he had no legal right to show where he got the money, so, uh, it was, uh, yeah. It was, there was just, at that time, I mean, the, you know, drugs, the, the crack epidemic, and, you know, it was still coming, it was still there, I mean, you know, I know it was big in the 80s, but even in the 90s, you know, all through Midtown, so much crack, so much money, you know, there was just so much going on, and, uh. You know, they, they, people don't realize, you know, when you're walking through Midtown Manhattan, what is actually out there. You know, and and uh, but fortunately, there are a lot of cops out there too, so that's good. You know.
0: Well, people but, think like when I went to Manhattan North, what people don't realize is so the North is all the stash houses. Right. That's you know Washington Heights. It's that was the Wild West in the '70s, '80s, '90s. You had you had a market from New Jersey. That would come across the George Washington Bridge, yeah, and wait, taking it back. And basically, I mean, the drugs come in through uh, uh, Queens, and then the Colombians bring it in, and then the Dominicans had it up in the Heights, and then it get get farmed out. But people didn't think of Manhattan South as the North. But the reality is, there's way more money in the South, I, and you know, with a few, and like you said, Wall Street. There's a ton, I remember like those guys on Wall Street, I I remember sometimes like I'd have an arrest be down in Manhattan Central Park there would be guys in suits, you know what I mean? Like all coked up, arrested for one thing or another. It was like footloose and francy-free with the money down there.
1: Yeah. I know. There was a lot of money and,
0: you know, and it's true. I mean, most of our
1: cases, CIs would take us back up to the north because that's where they bought or that's where the stash house was or, you know, um... But we had more than, had more than enough, enough to, to do, do in, in downtown Manhattan, Manhattan, too, you know?
0: One of the craziest stories, I remember one time, we hadn't talked for a while, and you were still active. I think you were going to retire, and we were talking, and you're like, yeah, I can't believe this, I'm getting sued. And I said, what are you getting huh. sued for? And you start reading me this letter, and I couldn't stop laughing. As funny as it is, I'm getting sued. And, and the, the letter is from a guy that's suing you who's in jail, and he's writing the corporation council or whoever, on t- such and such a date, on such and such a time, I robbed a camp stand. <laughs> Tell that story, how you're off duty, you guys are sitting in a bar. Yeah,
1: yeah so we were off duty. Um, we never took our guns with us when we went off duty. You know, we were off, We were drinking, it was just off limits, and uh, we went to a local bar, and we were sitting there having a, having a few, and... The front windows were open, so all of a sudden we hear pow, pow, and I said, man, those sound like gunshots, and we look down the street, and here's this guy running like crazy, and he's got a gun in one hand, he's got this huge crowd behind him with pipes and stuff, and they're chasing him, and we're like, what the heck, so we jump out, we come out of the bar, and we go across the street, and just as we're crossing, he makes it to the corner, Drags this woman out of her car, jumps in, and it's a stick, and he can't do the stick, and he's trying his best. So two of my investigators open the doors, and they like just dra- grab him and drag him out of the car. By now, there's this huge crowd of people, and uh, we held them and until they got there. And so it turns out, he- <laughs> that's a great story. He had worked at a cab stand. I don't know what he did He was a mechanic or something. He decided to go back wearing one of those glasses with the nose and the mustache. That was his disguise. And he walked in with a gun, and he robs the cab stand. And now he's running away, and everyone from the cab stand is running after him. They all know who he is. And so they're running after him, and there's a FedEx guy or a UPS guy standing there. And they're like, stop that guy. And he takes the gun, and he points it at him, and he pulls the trigger and nothing happens. And then he starts running again and he sees the crowd and he's just firing rounds now over, over their head. And so um, we grab him, they arrest him, he has two guns on him, he had the fake mustache, no, that was the best, the glasses with the mustache. And so he gets convicted, he goes to jail, he got like 25 years to life, and one day I get a notification that I'm being sued. And the corporation lawyer sends this letter and it says, I'm so-and-so and and I'm serving 25 years to life in, I don't know where he was, Sing Sing or something. And uh, on such and such a date, I robbed the cab stand where I used to live with two guns and I uh, ran away and I tried to carjack a woman, but that the officers, now you remember, I told you, I said, we're unarmed, no handcuffs, no nothing. So we had to sort of, like, bodily force this guy on the ground until someone came that could arrest him. You know, they, they pushed me to the ground. They dragged me out of a car. They held me against my will, you know, and uh, so it we went to court. So I go down to corporation council for the thing. I'm sitting on the stand. The judge reads the letter and says, are you kidding me? You know, he says, Sergeant, you're, you're, you're dismissed. dismissed. Send this guy back to jail And that was it. but it was you know a hundred stories, you know you know just so many things.
0: the things you know the things you get involved in and then and people don't realize like I got sued one time. I was working with you. I got sued one time. I locked up this guy with a Nissan Pathfinder and the VIN number, the VIN plate in the front window when you flipped it over was a Pepsi can. And the door sticker was a, a body plate that was like uh, a Coors light can i mean they had painted it stamped it right and the, and, and the pathfinder was stolen and i get called down to court and she's like yeah you know she, the 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 uh, the, uh, the attorney for the corporation council didn't really understand anything with vehicle identification numbers and stolen cars and i'm like this is the back of a pepsi can this is the back of a bud can i go you know Toyota, a Nissan, doesn't, you know, recycle metal to use it for VIN plates, you know, it's a federal crime to do these things, and she's like, oh, all right, this is bullshit, but like, you know, she's looking at me like I did something wrong, and I'm like, no, and luckily for me, I made photocopies of all this stuff, because I always did just in case, but people don't realize they'll tie you up in court with nonsense, and there should be something should happen that people either have to pay a fine or something if they're found for bringing something egregious, some kind of bullshit case, like your guy. He's doing 25 to life, and he's got time to, to draft out a lot a Dr. Camps and then submit it to the court. Um, I
1: think it might have been the Mad Hatter, but I'm not sure, had come out and said, we need more gun arrests here in the 50. So at roll call, I was—I think I was still on patrol, maybe. I don't know; I can't remember. But I said to the guys, "All right," I says, "Listen, the captain wants more gun arrests. It's just you know, and we know there were gun arrests, shootings, whatever. You know, go out there and see what you can do." So I told the guys, "Whoever gets the first gun call here is getting some a case of beer from me." So they go out on patrol. I get a call maybe like two hours in. Sarge, can you, you know, come over to this apartment in wherever? And I said, okay. So I go over. and what's going on? Oh, it's a family dispute, husband-wife type thing. But while we were in here talking to the, we had them separated, we are talking to them. This little, like, eight-year-old comes into the room and says, can you come in here to my room? I want to show you something. So they go into the kid's room. And underneath the, the mattress is, like, five guns. guns. <laughs> so, he <laughs> it up. They end up making a arrest for, like, five guns. Lock up the, up the the husband. husband. And I was and like, I don't believe it. it you know? <laughs> so, so, anyways, so, anyways, those, those two guys, guys got, got a, got a, a little beer, bit of a beer, beer drinking, drinking going, going, you know. You know? But uh, and, uh, it was fun. It was I, mean, I mean, we had, you know, I liked people that worked. I like to work. And, uh... You know, if you, you screwed, screwed up, up, you know, you, you screwed, know, you screwed up. up. I mean, that's the way the job is, you know. But uh, um, for the most part, I, 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 it was a good career. I, I, you know, I don't have any regrets.
0: So, I, I, You know, people ask me, would you do it all over again? I said, yeah. If I could go back oh, to definitely. the future and do this all, I would do, I would do it, you know, in the same time period and do everything all yep. over again. I, I have such fond memories from my career. I mean, I, I Yeah. yeah.
1: I do, too. And, you know... Um, People say, oh, you know, look at the cops today. They have such a... I said, it's the same. The cops are being treated the same now as they were 30 years ago. You know, it. it it's just a wave. It gets through. And, you know, there's so much for support for police these days. And, you know, that's it's just nonsense. You know, when people say, oh, I, I could never become a cop. It's,
0: it's the greatest job in the world. No. It's what you make of it, and especially at it a is, department like the NYPD, where there's so many different places to go. And like you said, even if you do screw up, it's not like a small police department where your lieutenant's going to be hunting you for the rest of your career. Right. You right. can go somewhere else. You right. know what right. I mean? It, it's going to suck yep. for a while. but And, you know, I, the one thing I always noticed about the NYPD is I never listened to people that said you can't do that. You can't yep. work yep. in that unit. You, I, I remember I, I went to the auto crime school. As a young cop, I want to know everything about stolen vehicles and these two detectives and, the, you know, 20, 30 guys in the room. And he goes, who wants to work here? Me being young and naive, I throw up my hand. He goes, do you have any family on the job? I said, no. He goes, y- you know anybody above the rank of inspector? I said, no. He goes, sit down. You'll never work here. And I'm like, oh, yeah? Ten years later, I was working there. But yeah. you've got to break your ass. You've you got to put yep, in the yep. work. You've got to get the good evaluations. Yeah. Yep. You know, you've you just, you just got to do the work, and, and it will be recognized. And, you know, the thing that always bothered me, too,
1: was people saying, you know, you, know, you, do, a, you do a stop or, you, or, or, or you're going to do a search or something. People telling you, oh, you can't do that or you can't do that. The worst thing I hated was an uneducated cop or an uneducated investigator, someone that doesn't know what they actually can do, you know. And it was just, you know, I liked people that knew what they were doing, whether they were undercovers, investigators, police officers. Other bosses, whoever it was, you know, and uh, like I said, I'm, I, I'm very happy with my career. I'm very happy with everyone I worked with, and, you know, it's fun to sit here and talk about it.
0: Paul, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it as a favor to me. Thank you, and I'd like yep. to thank everyone for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the content, I encourage you to check out my books on Amazon. Just type in my name, Vic Ferrari Like the Car. All my books will come up. They're $10 paperback, 2 ebook download including NYPD Law and Disorder. The opening chapter is called Embarrassing Moments, and there's a story about me almost losing my gun belt on the back of a men's room stall as I was taking a dump across the street from the Bronx courthouse. Um, thank you, and uh, I'll see you soon.
1: Bye-bye.